Let me give a brief introduction just to help you appreciate how we're going to study this this morning. My city is Washington, D.C. I love Washington, D.C. I've been many, many times. I've gone for many, many different occasions. So I've been to the museums, and I've been to the capitals, and I've been to the embassies, and I've been uh, to the restaurants. You, you know, I, I just, I, I love that city. I'm an Eagles fan, but I love that city. Uh, one thing I have n- not been able to understand in my various trips to D.C. is the tour bus with the people who sit and listen to the person who talks. I've always thought, why would you do that? Go see the city. Like, why would you trap yourself in a bus when you could just walk the mall? Um, I didn't appreciate it. But that's because I can go various times frequently. I can frequently go to Washington, D.C. So I never feel like I have to do the city. I can go down and experience a tiny piece of the city. And so, you know, with the locality we are to it, we can kind of take something like that in stride. But if I had flown over the sea to get here, or if I had one day, if I had come up from Austin, Texas, to visit Washington, D.C., and I had a day in Washington, D.C., well, I, you know, now that I think about it, I certainly would not want to bury myself in the Museum of Natural History. There's a sense in a, in a, a city that big that you can do one thing really well, maybe, or you can sit on a bus and listen to somebody tell you a little bit about the city. And this morning, that's a little bit of, of what's happened to us. You, uh, the reading of the word on the way to this moment was your bus tour. It's just too big of a sign. It, it, this sign is a sermon series. You could spend seven weeks in this text. It is so rich and it is so deep, and I am confounded on how to do it justice. It is, this is how the book begins of John. Just listen to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him has, was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 9 Man, it is reaching all the way to the beginning of this book. I mean, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. So it's just too big. It's too big to, in one day, in 35, even if I take 40 minutes, it's too big to do it justice. And so what we we did is you got your bus tour, and I encourage you, for one, the unique quality of the Gospel of John is it always beckons you deeper. He has written it with a reflection of the other Gospels, I believe. And so you could, you could revisit this chapter every year of your life for the rest of your life and not get to the bottom of that stairwell. It's just that big. But this morning, we're going to just take a few, a few stops and just a cursory reflection on the whole thing. But if you've come to see the ninth chapter, you will be disappointed. It's just too big. So with that, let me read uh, our focal passage, and and then we'll we'll see the sights that we can see. John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I want to spend some time here. Verse 1, it says that as Jesus passed by, as he, being Jesus passed by, he saw the blind man. So it's Jesus. I want to demonstrate that Jesus is the first actor in this play. He is the primary mover in this story. Jesus walks by. He catches sight of the man which something about that clearly instigates or encourages the disciples to then ask a question. So it's not as they were walking by, the disciples asked about this man. It's as they were walking by, Jesus took notice of the man. And in the taking notice, it appears that that proffered up the questions of the disciples. That's how it seems. But it seems from the way it opens that Jesus is the first mover in this whole, this, this whole story. But the question that comes out of the disciples is this. Rabbi, help us understand the nature of sin here. Whose sin is the cause of this man's blindness? Is it his or is it his parents? Now, the disciples are asking that question in large part because in Uh, the Jewish culture, there was a very strong belief that there was a direct linkage between our sinfulness and our consequences. Okay? Theologically, there's a truth that all sinfulness is related to consequences. But I think the truth of the matter is not that we can connect sin necessarily to consequences. It's difficult to do that. Sin is like, the you ever hear the butterfly effect? The butterfly flaps its wings over here, and you have a tsunami over in, in the Indian Ocean, something like that. Sin has that nature about it. That your sin, while it contributes to humanity's burden of sinful consequence, it's difficult, very difficult to ever know, like, when is that directly connected to that? I'm not saying it's not a useful question. I'm not saying that... God doesn't sometimes answer in it that the reason this is happening is because of your sins. Sometimes he does that. What I am saying that the Jewish culture had very strong relationships there. In their mind, clearly, this man with his blindness is directly connected to some sin in his life or in his immediate family's life. That, was, that would have been the assumption going in. Which raises for the disciples an interesting theological question because he was born blind. I don't think they're being judgmental here. I think they're trying to understand. If he's born blind, then who's to blame? You you, you see the difference? Or you see the... Did he do something in the womb? Is that what... I I mean, the Hebrew scholars used to wrestle over these questions for issues of, of... problematic 
birth defects, those sorts of things. They would go, was there, can a child sin inside the womb? Are they actively rebelling in the womb? There was, there was dispute over that. And the thought is, is, was there a sin happening in the womb is the thought, or, or something like that. Or is the, young, is the man blind because of his parents' sin? They're trying to understand that relationship. And Jesus doesn't answer their question the way they wanted it. Uh, or he doesn't answer their question. He gives a different sort of answer. But before we deal with the answer of Christ, I want to deal with the perspective of this question because I think this is, this is very typical for people. I think it's very typical for us to ask of others and of ourselves, why are they, why are they in the condition they're in? What was the cause of their condition. And I think when we ask that question, what our mind is thinking about is what is the, what are the past circumstances of sin or whatever, poor decisions, you call it what you want, what are the past circumstances that have contributed to their present situation? I think that's very common for people to ask. Like the disciples, why, why is he blind here? Where was the sin? I think we, people, who ask that actually, the people who ask that the most are the ones who are in the situation. Don't you think the... Who do you think in this story has asked that question the most? The blind man. I mean, it doesn't say it in the word. I would be flabbergasted if he had not asked that question a lot. Why am I made the way I'm made? Why am I the way I am? You ever ask that? What did I do? Whether it's, okay, and remember, this is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Jesus is the light of the world, bringing light to the, and life to, the, to men, mankind. There's this, this is ultimately is a spiritual reality. But have you ever in your life wondered, why can I not get over this? Why can't I get past this? Why did God make it? Why was this from my birth, my proclivity? Why is this an inescapable or seemingly inescapable part of my identity? Why did he make me this way? I would be amazed if the blind man had not asked that a thousand times. In fact, at the very end of the story, when the Pharisees had once again come back to him, and they're kind of interrogating him for the second time, this is what he says in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Where do you think he learned that? Do you think he just knew that? That to me has all the signs of someone who in his blind way had gone into the synagogue to say, where is there hope for me, Rabbi? Or had talked to the Pharisees, is there hope? That shows all the signs of someone having told him, never before in all the world has someone healed someone born blind, son. What did you do? In fact, the, the verse to follow. Let's just listen to how easy 
the insult and accusation of sin falls off the mouth and tongues of the Pharisees. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. This is, this is what I think. Um, I, I know it's a big chapter. It's, to me, it's so hard to get started because it starts in such a hard way. But I, I think when we look sometimes, we look upon a person who is in living in an unfortunate consequence, an unfortunate state. They're, they're living not like you. Okay? So you, that you have the eyes to see their unfortunate predicament. Oftentimes, what happens is we stand off as though maybe their predicament is, uh, maybe they're there because God wants them to be there. This is the just consequences of their sin. Or that understanding how, it, how they got there is the most important thing. You have the picture that's being painted is that they're walking along and Jesus takes notice of this man and the disciples take notice of this man, but the disciples' inclination is not to do anything. The disciples' inclination is simply to wonder, why is it that he's like that? I'll give you, this is how I think it is. I'll give you the most... the most apparent way that I see it in the life of the church. I think it it probably shows up best around the issues of homosexuality in the church. Was he born that way? Or was it something that happened? You know, we don't do that about any other sin. You come into this church and you are crippled in the area of forgiveness. You cannot forgive to save your life. And we don't stand far off and go, hmm, born that way? Or did you hone that skill? Some of you could count on one hand the number of times you've genuinely said you're sorry to another human being. Do you realize the damage you've wrought in your life to others? But we don't stand far off and kind of, were they born that way? It's amazing how in so many different ways we have no problem rushing in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are still, in every culture, every generation, maybe there's different things. I'm, I'm putting it out there because I, 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 I believe that the chill, you know, maybe this is just because the Lord's given me a heart here and a love here, but the chill that is felt from the church to that community of people is because they feel like we're sitting far off trying to diagnose how it happened when that's not what Jesus does in this story. So here's the disciples, you know, scratching their head, wondering, Jesus, while they're doing it, he's doing this, right? That's not the question. He walks over and he's, go to the, go. Jesus is saying, listen, 
Our interest sometimes is on, why did you make me this way? And Jesus' interest in why we're this way is not why did you do it, but for what purpose in the Lord am I this way? Do you see this? They have a past perspective. Why did you make him this way? Why did God do this? Why is this? What's the reason? What's the sinful cause of the sin? Whereas the Lord says, it's not because of his sin or because of his parents' sin. He's this way so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God's perspective on our sinful condition is not, he doesn't care how you became a sinner. There's very little gain in that for the Lord because we're universally sinful. That is a mundane exercise for the Holy Father to wonder how you and I came to be sinful. Every one of us is sinful. Jesus didn't come to diagnose it. Jesus came to cure it. It's such a great moment because I feel sometimes the church sits here like, do we even engage? And I, when I say church, I mean there's some part of my spirit, so I imagine there's some part in your spirit, and collectively, God grades our spirit. Right? Uh, they've made a lot of bad decisions. Do we step in? And do you, meanwhile, Jesus is forging the salve of salvation for these people. Jesus does not stand far off. And I don't think we should miss the fact that the name of the pool is sent. I don't think John wants us to miss it. He's saying, for crying out loud, don't you see? I mean, this is how deep, I mean, John just, he's just begging us to, to think deeply and deeply about the Lord here. I just want to encourage you. If you're trapped in the, why has he made me thus? I want to encourage you that God displays his glorifying work of salvation in you because you are thus. You are not a victim. You're not a victim. We are the way we are because of sin in the world and Jesus has come to glorify the Father and display salvation by saving us from our sin. That is the truth. And we're now... In the sixth of these seven signs, by this point, it's, it's, it's hardly even buried in the text. It's just sitting there. Okay. Let's proceed from that to one more stop. <laughs> At least one more stop. Jesus says uh, this phrase, we must work the work of him who sent us while it is still day. He actually says the word work Four times in two verses. It is not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And it's the Sabbath. So Jesus is clearly, it's clearly the Sabbath. That might even be why the disciples stood far off in the first place kind of in passive wonderment. But Jesus is clearly evoking the idea of work amidst the understanding of Sabbath. That ends up becoming 
the, 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 the crux of the problem as the story progresses is there are these people who, in the, out of their own mouth, say, we're not a disciple of him, we're a disciple of Moses. The indictment out of your own mouth, right? We don't follow Christ, we follow religion, is what they're saying. But the issue rises up on, is Jesus authorized to heal? Is God authorized to heal on the Sabbath? To which they say, no, he is not. But early on in this, in, he, some people will think, some people want to think Jesus is picking a fight. I, I think that maybe that's at work. I don't think he's at work. I think Jesus is with his disciples and he's always discipling. I think this is for his disciples to see and understand, which is this idea. Here's the meaning of the phrase. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. What Jesus is saying is, is while I am on the earth, while I am ministering, before my crucifixion, before I am taken away, we must work the works of him who sent me. The reason I've been put on earth is to minister and proclaim hope and freedom and salvation for all of mankind. That's what we've been sent to do. That's what Jesus is saying. This idea of when it becomes night, I think Jesus is specifically referring to the culmination of the cross. And so what he's saying is, we've been sent to do the work. Why would we not do the work of the Lord? Now, I think the idea, certainly true of Christ, but I think it's equally true of the body of Christ. In other words, if we can look at Christ's life and say that Christ's ministry on earth before the cross and his resurrection and then ascension, if that ministry on earth is the day before, before the night, then I think we could also say that the body of Christ that has been left upon the earth until, until we are resurrected to be with the Father, that this is our season of day. The church is in the day. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. And so in this, this, in this idea is there is no cause to stand far off and wonder about these things. God's, Jesus is saying, while we're here, this is what we do. This is the irony I find. I, I find on, so Sunday we call, for those of us who call it a Sabbath or think of it in those phrases, Sunday is our day of rest. So on Sundays, we come here to rest, but the reality is is that the body of Christ is never at rest. You see that? So we choose the Lord's day to rest, but that is not definitional of the nature of the church. The nature of the church is, is that all of God's people have found the peace of the Lord and are in the divine rest of God because of what Jesus has done for us. Not that we don't do anything. You're not being saved so that you can have a break. You're being brought into the body so that you can labor for the Lord while it is still day. That is, that I think this, I don't think he's trying to, Tick off the Pharisees. I think he's trying to teach his disciples this. Disciples who have in their mind that, that we're following somebody, that when he reigns, we're going to have this, this glorious kingdom over which we can reign. Or people who might have an attitude of, beneath the power of Jesus Christ, is, is a sense of peace almost like spiritual leisure. To which you would say, the church of Jesus Christ 
is a body of exertion. If we're going to model Christ, what does that mean? It means we exert ourselves until great tribulation, and then we are brought home. How can he call us the body of Christ without us mapping out what will inevitably happen to us? We work the works of him who sent us while it is still day. And then we're taken. That's the motivation behind, behind Christ and behind the sinner. I, I, the remaining time, I just want to look at, at the blind beggar. The man who sees. Who, by the way, is my hero. He is, he's a snappy one-liner. And uh, he was blind, but he could see. What I want you to see is the progression. So God heals him, gives him his sight. But watch the progression of his perspective. So he gets healed. His neighbors don't recognize him. That means something, right? Those who Christ healed look different. <laughs> so his neighbors don't even recognize him. But the first time they say, who did this to you? And this is his answer. In verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So the first time he's inquired about who did it, he says, the man. Well, this creates a hubbub, and eventually he gets brought to the Pharisees in the 13th verse. They brought him to the Pharisees, and they begin their own exchange on whether this was legal or illegal to do, to which they kind of end themselves at a dead end, and they turn of all places to the beggar, and they say, well, what do you think? And this time, what does he say? Does he say he's the man? No. Verse 17 so again, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So there's this, just watch this progression, right? So the Jews don't believe that. They don't like that. They go to his parents. He doesn't have the best parents, which is bizarre for me because I'm thinking it's because of his sin or his parents' sin and I have a vote. Uh, I, just kidding. But... Uh, his parents, they don't want to get in trouble with the... There is a beauty, by the way, in the fact that this man has been blind to all the silliness of humanity. His parents have been grown in it. Right? Sometimes when we see it, it makes us more nervous. It's, there's this beautiful simplicity to somebody who the very first day he's seeing just has no time for the trivialities of what's been affecting you and me. You know, I feel this way. I feel this way with how we could so carefully try to, you know, split hairs to make sure we're exact. We don't want to be, we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want people to call us those things and stop coming. And oh, but over here, we don't want to be, and we could, like the parents of this man, trying to find technicalities, not to have to speak. And he's, all I know is, is I was blind and now I see. What are you going to do with that? This refreshing simplicity. But they eventually come back to him and they say this. They say, for the second time they called the man. 
And this is when he says, this give glory to God in verse 24 is, is essentially tell the truth. That's an expression of tell us the truth. We know he's a sinner. And this is where he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is I was blind, but now I see. And they begin to drill in him. How is it that he opened your eyes? Explain it again. How exactly did it happen? And he has this comment, and I do think he's enjoying himself at this point. When he says, listen, I've told you already. How many times do you need to hear it? What, do you want to become his disciple also? That's what he says. And they say, you're his disciple, not us. So first he was a man, then he was a prophet. Now the man is his disciple. He eventually gets kicked out of the synagogue or the group. Jesus hears about it in 35, and he says this, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him. What a great thing to say to a blind man. Isn't it? It's like the best. You've seen him, and I am he. And he worships. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He starts off as a man. Then, he's a, then Jesus is a prophet. Next thing you know, the guy's being accused of being his disciple. And by the end of the day, he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Holy One of God, who he worships. This is the point of a sign. We cannot, we cannot experience the signs of God without either being given sight or being judged blind. This is how it ends. This is why it ends on such a hard note. You have this beautiful story, and then Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world. In other words, Jesus, you cannot, you cannot encounter the Christ without coming to a conclusion, seeing him for who he is, or in your rejection of him, you're calling down your own judgment. That, that's the point here. Is when God gives us a sign, we have to do something about it. The Pharisees are required to decide to think something about him. And they're choosing. Started off and they're struggling. But by the end, the, at least the group he's talking about, are choosing to declare that they do not know. God bless you, Glasscocks. <laughs> what? I, I don't want to make the assumption that we all have seen the Lord and we've all been given that spiritual sight. I don't want to make that assumption. So I want to ask, if you're here... I even hear the strongest atheists in the world talk about the birth of their child as a miracle. What are you going to do with that? Eventually, you have to decide something about Jesus. You have to. No opinion is rejection. It's my prayer that as Christ rushed to us to give us sight, we might rush to others because we have been called to work the work of him who sent us. 
And it's my hope that all of us would receive the sight that God offers. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we confess we were all blind from birth. Nobody has come out of the womb with a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But you have said that we all know, we all know that we are without excuse, that the attributes, God's character and his personhood have been plainly seen and clearly shown and displayed so that we're without excuse. Which means, Lord, that we have all been, we all are living beneath the call to decide what we think about who Jesus is, Lord. He's not a religion. He's not a set of rules. He's a person. Lord, in prayer, I I just confess the gospel that Jesus Christ, for our sins and our transgressions, gave himself up so that we might live, shed his blood so that we might have eternal life. Lord, I I pray this morning that each person would ask before you, what do they think of that? And Lord, I pray that through the witness of your signs, the things you've done in their lives and the lives of others, they might be drawn to say, the man healed me. He's a prophet. I'm his disciple. He's the Holy One of God. And worship. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.